0: Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 41, verses 1 through 36. So hopefully you took good advantage of when I let you sit down. So
1: <laughs> This is a long one. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the t- reed grass. Behold, seven other cows ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind." And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard, when we told him he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all of the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven first, the first pump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as in the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that come up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine. And all of the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow. For it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land, and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are that are coming and store up the grain in the authority of Pharaoh for the food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine.
0: It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we are going back to our series on the patriarchs. Really, the three quarters of the book of Genesis, the last three quarters of the book of Genesis. For the past five weeks, we kind of had a midwinter break like our students did with their Christmas break as we focus on the Advent season, the time as we commemorate the birth of Jesus Christ. So let me give a refresher. What are the patriarchs? Well, season one, um, we saw Abraham, the patriarchs being the male founders of the Jewish people. The men God selected to carry on the covenant he made with the Jewish people. He took a fi- um, we've taken a five-week break during the Advent season, but now we're back, just like the students are back to school. Season one was Abraham, the man of faith, who left his home and his kindred and went to a land that God had shown him. He was the one who was first told of the covenant of God. Season two is his, is his son Isaac, the son born from the power of the spirit um, to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. His name means to laugh. And season three, Jacob. He is the one who would be renamed Israel. And to this day, we still call the Hebrew people, we call them the people of Israel. We call their state and the land, the land of Israel after Jacob when he'd been given his new name. These men, these men, though not perfect, though many problems, God was not ashamed to be called their God. In Exodus chapter three, verse six, when God is speaking to Moses, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Also, Jacob's twelve sons. Jacob's twelve sons are also known as patriarchs. They're the ones who founded each of the tribes. The twelve tribes of Israel are founded by one of Jacob's sons. Now, two of them are actually by one, but we'll get into that much later. When we talk about the twelve tribes of Israel, we're talking about the twelve tribes founded by Jacob's sons. They are also part of the patriarchs. Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church in Acts chapter seven, verses eight and nine, when he's giving a summary, and he's giving a summary of the history of the Israelites. He says in verse eight, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob, the 12 patriarchs. It's very interesting because we see the, about three quarters of Genesis really being a story of a family. And it's a family kind of like a lot of our families. The specifics are different, but the generalities are the same because they are a broken family in a broken world. These are men who are admired, revered by the Jewish people. But man, we see a lot of issues, right? Abraham, not once, but twice, tries to convince people that his wife is his sister so that, well, terrible things would happen. And then Isaac does the same thing. And then Jacob, Jacob, you know, his name means heel grabber. And it seems like at every turn, he decides, instead of speaking the truth, he speaks with deceit. And then, not to not to be outdone, his 12 sons increase in evil. Like two of them kill the neighbors. And of course, the 10 of them take the second youngest and sell him into slavery. And in chapter 41, we see this continued story of the, the second to youngest son, Joseph. They are a broken family in a broken world who can restore what has been broken. There's a much bigger story here, a story that God is telling about himself, a story that God is about to about to speak with a crescendo, with a great famine in the entire land. And unless the people are prepared, it's the end of the story. Those in the known world, those we've been following would die in starvation and out of thirst. But God does a work in Joseph that saves those people. Talking about Joseph here, once again, in chapter 41 and 41, as you were listening, as Becca was reading, I hope you're listening. The dreams. Joseph is known about dreams. When uh, they were making the animated feature, they called him Joseph, King of Dreams. I feel like Joseph in heaven, if he heard about that, he'd be like, wait, what? How about Joseph and the King of Dreams? Because even in here, I hope you were listening, he said, it's not in me. He's very careful to give the glory to God that it wasn't him. He was, he had a treasure in jars of clay. Amen. It's something we have to remember too. It's not in us. It is Christ in us, but it is not of us. There are two people, two people in the Bible who are most well-known for interpretation of dreams, Joseph and Daniel. One of the essential aspects of how God used Joseph was in the interpretation of dreams. God speaking through dreams and giving individuals the ability to interpret them. This might be surprising to you. It's actually very rare even in the Bible. Very rare. The two most prominent dream interpreters that we find is Daniel and Joseph. Daniel was a, Daniel has a moment very much like what we heard today with Joseph, except his king, unlike Pharaoh, Pharaoh tells people his dream and wants them to interpret him. Daniel's king tells him, tells his wise men, tells his magicians, Okay, I had a dream, and if the the gods, it's a pagan culture, he says, if the gods really are speaking through you, then you tell me the dream. That's a really good one. It's like when people go to psychics, and the psychic wants to ask you all these questions, it's like, you tell me. You supposedly know things, right? So Daniel is also one of those dream interpreters. God may choose, even in our day, to speak to us in a dream, but when we want to hear from God, we need to actually go to his word. Dreams are not equal to God's word. It is not equal to the Bible. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 tells us that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We can see that in many ways in the visions and the prophecies that the prophets had, but we also have theophanies and Christophanies, which is the appearance of God in the Old Testament, appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, And he appears at many times and in various ways. And then we have what we were just celebrating during Christmas, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that's verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir over all things, through whom also he created the world. Any other truth claim, period, needs to be measured, judged, and evaluated by the Bible. Let me say that again. Every other truth claim must be measured, judged, and evaluated by the Bible. Before the scriptures are written, like what we've been reading about today, the only way they could tell is if what was being prophesied come true. Today, we have the scriptures. We even have a warning in Deuteronomy that if somebody comes and they give you a prophecy, the prophecy comes true, but they tell you to go after other gods, to throw them out of the camp, actually to kill them. But of course, we're in an age of grace, so we don't kill false prophets anymore. If you want to hear from God, God may decide to speak in a unique way in your life, but it will be encouraging you in the scriptures, not adding or taking away from them. If you want to hear from God, open up your Bible. If you want to hear an audible voice of God, read it out loud. There are three special times of dreams in Joseph's life. Three instances in which dreams have shaped his life that God used him in interpretation or the dream itself. We have Joseph's two dreams. We have the dream of the butler and the baker, and we have the two dreams of Pharaoh. Since we took a break, let me remind you of the dreams associated with the life of Joseph that we have been going through. First up, Joseph's two dreams. He has these two dreams of his, bow, of his brothers bowing to him. At least that's what their interpretation was, and it was a correct interpretation. The second instance of dreams was with the butler and the baker. And once again, I have no idea what the candlestick maker was doing. Both had their own dreams, but their dreams were very similar. It is just the ending that was different. The interpretation was different. Third is the one that we heard from today, that of Pharaoh's. And every one of these, these are, these are dreams that God is giving. These are not just dreams put upon, given to people, that uh, people have after they've eaten something that they shouldn't have been eating or watching something that they shouldn't have been watching. It's double trouble in both, in all three instances. In every instant, you, we have the dream repeated. We have a dream repeated in what we just read today that meant that God was emphasizing that this is something he would do. In instance one and three, we have one person having two dreams. And the second instance, we have two people having their own dream with its own interpretation. In every instance so far, we've had both good and bad. For Joseph's dreams, they were very good for him. His brothers thought they were very bad news for them. And that's how they took it. They were jealous. They envied him and they called him, let's see what comes of his dreams after we kill him. It was good news for the butler. It was bad news for the baker. I have no idea what happened with the candlestick maker. For Pharaoh, the interpretation was good, bad, and the plan of God, though, was good once again. In all three events, Joseph is acting as God's messenger. Essentially, this message is a physical salvation or condemnation for the, for the um, baker. Why is, there, um, why is there a famine coming? Why do famines still happen? The short answer is our fault. Specifically, I guess we could lay out a cane for the earth was cursed thanks to him when he spilled his brother's blood on there, on the, on it. We could go to Adam and Eve when they, when they broke God's law, or we could go to our own selves when we break God's law. The message God had. That he was using Joseph to give his salvation from physical death. But God has sent a final and perfect messenger to you and I, Jesus Christ. And it is a much better message. An eternal message. A message of spiritual salvation. Um, as I was putting together this week's sermon, obviously there's very interesting things that happen in this chapter. You have zombie, zombie cows and zombie wheat And they are. I'll explain that in a second. Um, But as I was going through this, my whole week really was, after I got done with this, was meditating on the first four words. And can you pull up verse one, please? After two whole years. So you got your Bibles open, I hope, and you can look at the context. See, right before this, he gives a he gives an interpretation to the to the cupbearer and the baker i keep saying butler because it's fun to say that and then i can make the joke about the candlestick maker um the cupbearer and the baker and he had asked the cupbearer who who got a good interpretation it came true that when he comes into when he goes back to the kingdom to remember him the cupbearer says yes i will and then the omniscient narrator the holy spirit through moses says no but he was forgotten And then we have these words right here. These four words, these four words have been haunting me all week after two whole years. That means something so much more to me now than it did even last year. Because God has been taking me through a time where I'm starting to understand how long two years really is. Now that's not associating with, I've been here four years going on five years. I'm not saying like, but I'm just saying that a year can mean something a lot different. We look at two whole years and really the focus that, that I, really, I really had was the ESV writers translating whole years because that, that communicates a certain amount of anxiety of how long this really was. And I thought about Joseph and I thought about how for two years, people thought the worst of him. For much longer, he's been a slave. He's been a prisoner and he had an accusation made against him and... Uh, evident, I mean, eventually, some people are going to believe that false accusation for two years. Two whole years, that anxiety that is in that. Oh, oh well. I guess I missed that page, but oh well. Um, it makes me think of when I was a kid. Me and my brother were about a year ish apart. His name is Brent. And I know Brent Owens here. He has a little brother named Jason, but I'm talking about my brother, Brent. And we were little kids and our mom made us clean our room and it was taking forever because we didn't know how to clean a room. I don't think we'd even made the bed. And we were playing around, but we were getting frustrated because we wanted to do other things. And my brother was getting so frustrated with my mom and he's he's like yelling at her. And he's like, we've been down here for a whole, and he, and he was he was so angry. He's like a whole owl. And as a good, he, he misspoke. He meant to say hour. So as a, good, as a good older brother, I have remembered that always. And I bring it up every moment I can. It was such a funny moment because we were so angry. And then he said that and we started laughing. And even at his, at his, uh, at his wedding, as his best man speech, I, I included that. And Brent was almost on the floor laughing. But the, the, for two whole years, that communicates something. That communicates something that we that is very hard for us to take, take into our hearts. David Gusick, Pastor David Gusick, gives, uh, gives four takeaways from those four words. One, sometimes the good we do seems unrewarded. See, all of us would say that, no, I'm not doing, I'm doing it for the Lord, but it is hard when we're, un, we're overlooked. When people don't see the good work we are doing, And we can say to ourselves all the time, I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm not doing it for men. But there's part of us that just say, I feel forgotten. I feel unappreciated. Here's the second one. Waiting is a common theme in the Christian life. Man, I wish that wasn't true, but it is. Waiting is a common theme in our life. That often what God tells us to do is wait. But the waiting isn't in futility. God is doing something. He is active in the waiting. The third one he says is God often appoints us to wait much longer than we would like. Duh. <laughs> everybody, I, I imagine everybody, I don't really have to explain this, right? When we're in that time of waiting, it lasts much longer. We want, we're like, okay, yeah, I've been waiting for a week. When is that finally going? When am I finally gonna get that breakthrough? When am I, When is it finally going to turn a corner? I've had times in my ministry where I've been praying to God, God, release this burden of ministry because I I don't want to do this anymore. I'm having panic attacks. I can't go on any further. There's times in ministry where I felt like my cat, Bear, when I have to give him medicine. And I got to hold him down. And Bear is pretty sure that everybody wants to kill him at all points in time. So Bear never wants to be held down. So I got to hold him down. And I remember one time having to give him like medicine in the syringe where you have to squirt it into their mouth. Bear was pretty sure this was the moment I was murdering him and he was trying to get away. So there are times when I've been having to wait on the Lord where I feel like that, where God has to hold me down and I'm trying to get away. I'm trying to claw my way out of this. For two whole years, he spends in a pit doing the mundane work that the the warden should have been doing is entrusted to him. He's being faithful and this is one of the most miraculous things in Joseph's life. As I understand this, as I grow in my faith is he does not become bitter. He does not become bitter and he does not take his frustration out on the Lord. The fourth thing David Guzik says is that God appoints our starts and our stops. God appoints our stops, our starts and our stops. That's another tough lesson that God had to educate me on. Early on, especially when I graduated college, I thought, you know, because this is what I've been told in camps and in college and stuff, is I'm going to be a world changer. And then I graduate college and I'm not really doing anything that's world changey. And God having to take me through that, it's more about being faithful than it's about whatever I think is success. Two years, Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer, but he was not forgotten by his God. The Bible doesn't tell us what happened in all of those two years, but I know that God was active. How do I know? His response to Pharaoh when he is asked if he can interpret the dreams, he could have said, yes, I'm the man. Instead, he gives credit to God. These are not the actions of a bitter man. I believe he most certainly went through one of the most difficult things a person can go through, but he didn't become bitter. Then later, when he wants to enact some sweet, sweet payback on his brothers, he's unable to go through with it. He abandons the plan midway through because he cannot, because he cannot take that. That is not the work. That is not the actions of a bitter man. The serious work of the Holy Spirit in your life is not to give you goosebumps. It is not for us to go, whoa. The whole serious work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to make you more like Jesus Christ. To the exclusion of everything else. You, dear one, are not forgotten. God is working even in the moments where we're waiting in the pit. God. In this story, as we, as we read it, we see God working throughout history right here with this great famine um, in the land. But in this, and while God is making, while God is telling his story, he is making Joseph a part of that story. God determines the course of history. And while he's determining the course of history, he is determining the course of your story as well. And since I labeled this, these dreams, and this chapter deals with so much about dreams, I want to talk about, well, one, the nightmare in verses two through eight. Then in verses 9 through 13, we have a dream that's remembered. Then in verses 14 through 24, a nightmare remembered. And then, and then in verses 25 through 36, a dream revealed. Let's start with the nightmare. Becca read that. Thank you so much, Becca. Um, as we began here, and I should probably turn to the scripture myself as we go along. Verses two through eight, the nightmare. As a small child, I had nightmares. I kind of feel like everybody who had their very early childhood in the 80s probably had nightmares because all of our, uh, all of our teenage babysitters didn't have enough wisdom not to, not to play horror movies. It was like a renaissance of the slasher movies in that time. So I remember, I remember there was times where I had to like plug my ears because I couldn't even take like the sound of the voices in those movies. That's not the type of nightmare we're talking about here. Um, Pharaoh, he's not having a nightmare because he just watched Night of the Living Cows. Um, This was a nightmare sent by God. And I do say nightmare because it troubled him so much. It kept him up all night. There are a few things that we should note about this nightmare. It troubled Pharaoh. It was two dreams, but as Joseph said, it's really one. And it was confusing to Pharaoh, in which his wise people, his magicians, the pagan, uh, the pagan uh, interpreters, had no, no inspiration for. So let's go into this. He has two, he has two dreams, two dreams that bother him. The first one in verses two through four is that of zombie cows. And I do say about zombie cows, right? Because you have. Now, of course, he didn't have that vernacular, but you have. His dream in which by the Nile, a very common sight to him is a bunch of cows, very fat, good-looking cows come up out of the Nile. In the hot summer heat, that's where they would go. They would go to that place of refreshing. And they come out of the Nile. And then all of a sudden, he sees gaunt, seven gaunt, starving cows. And the starving, gaunt, rough-looking cows eat the fat cows. That's a zombie cow. And it makes it. He wakes up from this, but this dream alone doesn't really mean anything. I want to really point this out. There was superstition. There was mythology. There was pagan worship. They were not idiots just because they lived back then. A lot of times, people like, especially as modern, that's our conceit: is that we think that people who lived before us were just fools and they were just like, "Oh, it's a, it's a fire. It must be whatever." They were not idiots. He realized something was special about this when he had this another dream, very similar, but very confusing. That was of zombie grain. Pharaoh goes back to sleep only to have a second dream. Instead of zombie cows, now it's zombie wheat. Pharaoh's second dream, along with the first, lets lets him know that something is really up here. These are not typical dreams. They are vivid. He can explain what is happening in them. I don't know about you, a lot of times when I tell people about a dream I have, I omit certain things that just don't make any sense. And I can't say that I'm giving a very, a truthful, accurate picture of what it was, because most of it I just don't understand. But this is right here, this is God speaking in an unusual way to Pharaoh. In the Old Testament, it is often to the sinner that God speaks to like this in a dream. The trouble this troubles Pharaoh greatly, but little does he know. God has told Pharaoh how he can save himself and his nation. He has the info; it's just not in the language he can understand. This is very much like in the Book of Acts with the Ethiopian eunuch. Philip the evangelist. He is one of the seven that is. Uh, he is one of the seven that is selected by the apostles to wait on tables. And here's another thing, they're to wait on tables, but then God uses them in such mighty ministry. So Philip is one of those. He's also known as Philip the Evangelist. In fact, many of the early churches were started by Philip. So Philip, he is is on his way on this road and he sees this Ethiopian eunuch. He's an official of Ethiopia. And he sees him reading the scroll of Isaiah and he says, do you understand what you're reading? And this official tells him, no, I mean, how can I understand without somebody explaining it to me? That's our role, Christians, too. People know bits and pieces of the word of God, but we are there to explain it. We are there to teach them to obey everything the Lord has commanded us. That's the Great Commission. So he doesn't, hate it. it's in a language he doesn't know, obviously. It's in this dream. And so he asked his wise men, he asked his magicians, he asked his astrologers. Nobody has any clue. There are certain things in these dreams that a person could try to fib about, but the exact meaning of it, nobody wants to tackle that. He tries to get them to explain it. He gets no luck. And in verse eight, we see Pharaoh trying to find someone who can explain that to him. If Pharaoh had the book of Genesis, he could flip a chapter back and he could see that Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God. Of course, if he had the book of Genesis, he could flip forward as well. You know how amazing it is that we have this? And how much How much light we have in our life, we are not in darkness, but sometimes we want to ignore this and then wonder why we're in darkness. I can't tell you how many people come to me and they're just kind of like, they have this attitude of like, I don't know and nobody knows. And I'm like, okay, let's open up the Bible. And they're like, oh, I already know all that. Oh, really? I didn't realize you're just walking up. You don't walk on the ground. You walk on clouds and stuff. You know everything. Let's actually go into the scriptures. Then all of a sudden you show them a scripture and they are like, wow, that's in there? There is answers for this. There is reasons why this is happening in my life. And here's what I should be doing. Pharaoh doesn't have that. But if he did have it, he could see Joseph, Joseph what he said to the butcher, not butcher, to the baker and the butler, do not interpretations belong to God. And in verses nine through 13, we have a dream that's remembered, or I should say dreams that are remembered. That is of the cupbearer, The butler, as I like to call him, from the King James Version. A dream remembered in verses 9 through 13. In verse 9, we have the butler saying, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. You know, I've always kind of read that. Maybe you've read this this way too. I always thought he was talking about, only about his offenses towards Pharaoh. Then I was reading a couple commentaries and they all kind of had the same thing to say. No, his offenses to Pharaoh. Joseph, that's who he offended because he said he would remember him, but he forgot him. When you think about the offenses we do to other people, let me make an aside here too. You've offended other people. I don't care who you are. If you think your whole life is just people doing things to you, don't be surprised if you're bitter. Because you're like, oh, my... Poor me, Sante Jason, or whatever. St. Jason has never done anything wrong. People are always just so mean to him. Very easy to get bitter that way. The cupbearer, is like, I remember my offenses. You know what his offenses was? He forgot about Joseph. Here's one way we offend people in our life. We forget about them. We forget those who've done a great kindness to us, and we do it all the time. So, before I preach this to you, I get to preach this to myself. So I'm thinking about this. I'm like, hey, when's the last time I called my mom and told her to thank her, thanked her for all the things she did as I was growing up, raising five kids alone? I thought about my former senior pastor. When's the last time I told him, thank you for training me how to be a pastor? And then I started going into a lot of things and I'm like, oh my word, there's so many people I've offended because I forgot about them too. Forget about them when it comes to certain things that I could be doing. So how about you? Who have you not shown gratitude, gratitude towards? Who are the people in your life you've never even said thank you that they've done so much for you? I think for many of us, it would be our parents. We forget the sacrifices that they made. We forget how they went without so that we could go he remembers his offenses this day. In verses 10 and 11, the cupbearer sees his king in such distress, distress that he remembers he was in when he was in a pit. He then remembers his dream. But, but for us, the reader, we remember Joseph's dreams as well. And for two whole years, Joseph has to reconcile his dreams that God gave him with the present reality, with his present reality. Somehow, some way he doesn't become bitter. Verses 12 through 13, he tells his king about a prophet he knows with a track record, a dreamer who has dreams that are a reality. In verses 12 and 13, a young Hebrew was there. Similar translations, a Hebrew lad. Joseph, by the way, he's in his 20s, 26, 20, no, 28 when he meets the cupbearer. He's 30 when he meets with Pharaoh. So if you're under 30 today, you are a lad or a lass. And I will refer to you that way from now on. I'm just kidding. (laughs) A young Hebrew is there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. Verse 13, and and as he interpreted to us, so it came about. Um, I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. He's a prophet with a track record. Joseph has, has a track record when it comes to dream interpretation. And I would call to, I'd call to your attention back to the event too. It wasn't vague. It was very specific, his interpretation. It was time sensitive. As we look at the cupbearer, he is not Jesus. There's many ways in which Joseph can be compared to Jesus. But let's look at, let's contrast Jesus to the cupbearer. The cupbearer is not like Jesus. Unlike the cupbearer, Jesus remembers us when he comes into his kingdom. Amen. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, we had the two thieves, both hurl, hurtling violence towards him, verbal violence towards him. Then one, all of a sudden comes to himself, realizes we've been put on a cross for a reason, but not him. He's innocent. And he turns to him and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And that day he was with him in paradise. He remembers us. You know, that's one of the things in the Christian thing we just kind of take for granted that we have a great high priest making intercession for us both day and night. You know why we take it for granted? Because there's times where we feel like they said before, forgotten. You're never forgotten. You have a great high priest who hovers over you making intercession for you. Like, what about the times where I feel like I am forgotten, where I don't feel the presence of God? Those are the times when he is hovering above you, praying over you, making intercession for you to the Father. He remembers us when he comes into his kingdom. The cupbearer doesn't rescue Joseph from jail, but Jesus rescues us from our pit of sin. The cupbearer was comforted by Joseph, but Jesus comforts us in all our trouble. With the com- so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. That is verses, that is up to verse 13. He remembers his dream and Joseph's dreams are remembered by us, the reader. Verses 14 through 24, a nightmare remembered. Do you remember your nightmares? Like I said before, I don't. I could not give you an adequate representation of one of them. I just know kind of bits and pieces, but this is different. This is a dream that God had given Pharaoh. When we look at Joseph, Joseph's has been living his nightmares for two whole years, two years of people thinking the worst of him, two years of living in a pit. Sometimes we feel like we have slipped out of God's will because things are dark and because we cannot see the light for two whole years. Joseph was also in the will of God for his life. God had sent him to Egypt for such a time as this. And right here in verse 14, he is brought out of the pit. This is the second time he's been brought out of a pit. Verse 14, then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. Now the writer, Moses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, could have used a different word here, referring to the prison. Instead, he uses the word pit and is the same word he used when Joseph was lowered into the cistern and then he was brought out of the pit. He uses the same word here because we are to make an analogy or to make a parallel between the two. That he was then put into the pit by his brothers. He's put into the pit by unjust accusations, but he's brought out of the pit, not by his brothers, not by Pharaoh, but by the hand of God himself. Out of the pit. When Often when God is working in our lives, it resembles what happens with Joseph and that it doesn't feel like anything is happening for a long time and then suddenly A lot happens and very quickly. And that's what we see. If I was to preach through the entire chapter, we'd see Joseph goes from, let's see here, a slave, I guess you could say a kidnapped slave because he's kidnapped, he's thrown by his brothers, kidnapped, a slave, a prisoner, one who's been falsely accused, one who's been forgotten to the number two guy for the known world. In charge of everything. Only the, the literal term Pharaoh separates him from Pharaoh in a very short time. But that is the way it works in most people's life. This isn't a universal truth, but for most people, most believers, this is what happens, is that nothing happens for quite a long time, then a lot happens all at once pastor I know named Paul Washer. He's a missionary to South America. He was preaching on this thing. He said, there are exceptions to this. There are some people, they start off in whatever they're doing and it's instant success. But for most people, this is what happens with Joseph is what happens with us. Like not much happens for a very long time. And then all of a sudden it all happens. And we tend to think nothing was happening for that period of time, but actually a lot was happening during that time. God was preparing us. Let me say what I mean by preparing. I don't just mean for the works, the good works he's prepared before the foundations of the world, but also that we might be conformed to the image of his son, which is the more important work. Sometimes we make this into kind of a worldly thing of like, you know, your breakthrough's coming and God has this great thing for you in your life that's gonna change the world. You may not change the world at all and that's fine because the greater work is for you to be the image of Jesus Christ because he's the one who changes the world, not you. So he was saying how for a lot of people, it's more, it's a lot more like Joseph in that, like, nothing happens. He's talking about, he's talking about pastors. For a lot of pastors that early on, they fail in everything they try to do. They fail even in, in, in the virtues, in prayer, in Bible reading. And they, they fail in their ministries. They're either, they're, they're voted out, kicked out. It just fails in what they do. And then you can feel so discouraged, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life so that you finally get to the point, like the psalmist, where you say, Whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. We have so many examples though of people who did not go through that and it was revealed in them that success killed them worse than disappointment. Success is a whole lot harder than disappointment because you get success and then you realize I'm still the same person. I have nothing else. Even in ministry, and this is kind of a, Kind of lifting up the veil on ministry is envy and jealousy is a big factor for a lot of pastors. But you know what's crazy? They're they're jealous and they're envious of people who are living some pretty bad lives. I remember when I was in high school, there was a guy named Joshua Harris. He wrote a book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And if you were a Christian in the late 90s, early 2000s, you read I Kiss Dating Goodbye, whether you wanted to or not. If you had Christian parents, you read it. If you, went to, if you went to youth group, you read it. He's probably one of the most famous people in the late 90s when it came to Christian culture. He, his books kind of waned and then he came back and he was, he was automatically put as the head of some mega church. And today, he's not sure whether or not God exists. Then for a lot of pastors who envied him, and had to take the slower road, the Joseph road. What a silly thing to do when you realize it was the kindness of God keeping you from that. It was the very loving kindness of God keeping you from that. Joseph, he takes the long road and nothing happens for quite a long time. Then all of a sudden it seems like everything happens. And we see, once again, we see the fruit of his prison, of his slavery. And what God, the Holy Spirit had done in his life in verses 15 and 16, because we have Joseph's humility. One constant theme in Joseph's life is his humility. He has been brought out of the pit, cleaned up and shaved, and he has, and he has his audience with the king of the known world. You would think, you would think that, um, it was this, his time to impress, time to get creative license with his resume. So when he is asked by Pharaoh, I hear that you know how to interpret dreams. He's like, you know it, king of dreams, right here. It's a good thing you called on me because I'm the man. You know what he says? It's not in me. It's not in me. God, God is the one. The God of my fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob a God you know nothing of is the God over you and over all of the land of Egypt. And when he stretches out his hand, no one can turn it back. That's what we're going to get into when he gives the interpretation. When he says that God has determined this, there's no wiggle room for Pharaoh to try to upset God's plan. He says, it is not in me. I have sat sat through a lot of sermons that if you asked me to give a summary at the very end of this person, of this guy or this gal, I would say this is what their big message was. It was me with Jesus tagged on at the end. It's just a brag fest of what they've done. Humility, it really shows the heart of the person. And really a person can even seem humble on the outside, but have a lot of pride on the inside. Because I know I used to do this. People would be like, Pastor Jason, good sermon. And I'd be like, it wasn't me. It was all God. And on the outside, I saw him so humble. And inside, I'm just like soaking it in. And I realized just in my own heart, I need to give God the glory and thank people for saying something nice. And that's what I do today. I mean, like if you, if you tell me a good sermon, I, I appreciate it. But in my heart, I don't let it get inside. I give that back to God. And I, I, I say to God, what a mighty God I serve. Because as you've been following along here, this isn't deep thoughts with Pastor Jason. This is, here are the verses. Here is the explanation of the scripture. He, after this, Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. He includes some details he hadn't, he hadn't included before in which the cows and the wheat, after they had eaten, the sick ones ate the healthy ones. They didn't gain any weight. Once again, they're zombies. Um, Pharaoh tells Joseph that no one can explain it to him. So it's kind of like, okay, so all of these learned people, all of these magicians, all of these astrologers, they have absolutely no clue. Good luck, Joseph. Joseph doesn't miss a beat. And that's where we have a dream revealed, verses 25 through 36. Verses 25 through 36. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh. When we look at chapter 41, it's maybe somewhat easy for us to Think the prime actors in this are Pharaoh and Joseph. According to Joseph, the prime actor in all of this is God. God has determined. God is telling his story, Pharaoh, and you're a part of it. And here's how you can avoid being a bad part of it. This uh, nightmare again, Pharaoh recounts the nightmare. He gives these these, uh, unusual details. And then Joseph reveals this dream everything, and I mean everything that has ever happened up to this point and beyond this point, is orchestrated by God. It is his providence. John Piper wrote in his book, Providence, that the providence of God, providence is God's purposeful sovereignty. It extent reaches down to the flight of electrons up to the movement of galaxies and into the heart of man. Its nature is wise, just and good, and its goal is the goal of Christ-exalting glorification of God through the gladness of a redeemed people in a new world. Simply put, it is not just God being a passive actor, a passive participant in his creation, but he acts in it. He's involved. That's why I say that when you feel like you've been forgotten, you haven't been forgotten. God is intimately aware of where you are at. Here it is. The plan's... From when God had told Abraham to leave the Ur, the Chaldees is coming to fruition, that he had told Abraham that he would bless him and that out of that blessing, he would bless the whole world. This is just a small taste of what God will do in the future, but it is a promise that is being fulfilled in Joseph. If Joseph messes up what is about to happen, the people of Israel will die in the desert. No people of Israel, no Messiah, no salvation. We are lost in our sins. However, that was never an option. God was never wringing his hands, wondering, what am I gonna do? In Joseph's interpretation, before we go into that, I have on my my thing right here, there there are some helpful hints for charlatans. Don't do anything Joseph does because you can be found out fake if you do. Joseph is specific and he gives a timetable and he gives glory to God. There are a lot of people Who's fancies themselves as dream interpreter, both secular and spiritual. I've never met one that was, was good. I'll be honest. I, I, some people are like, well, what about this person? Here's the question. Are they giving you a timetable so that you can actually assess what's going on? And are they being specific? Because I've heard a lot of people's quote unquote dreams and they're just goffily goop of something that may be happening at some point in time so you can never actually test what they're saying. If they make a truth claim, I can look into the scriptures, but basically what they want to do is something that cannot be verified. But Joseph, he gives a timetable of seven years. You know what happens to Joseph in year one if they have a famine? We have some really grisly examples from history, what happens to false prophets. It's not good. If there's seven years of plenty, and then on the eighth year, there's no famine, it's still a good year or an okay year. Not good. Joseph said, God is giving me this interpretation. So if he's wrong, he's lying. And worse than that, he's putting lies in the very mouth of God. Very serious deal. So hints for charlatans, don't do this. You know, in the 2011, a guy named Harold Canopy should have known this as well. He gave a date for the return of Jesus Christ. And as funny as it was, it was tragic because people sold their houses People sold everything they have, gave it to his church so they could put up billboards everywhere that Jesus is returning in 2011. You know, worse than that though, is in 2012, the Gentiles cursed God because of him, made fun of our Lord and Savior because of him. Should have listened to my sermon. God dictates to everyone. In verse 25, the Hebrew slave speaks to the king of Egypt and tells him, God is dictating terms to you. God will do this, will do this, and there is nothing you can do to stop him. That is God's MO. He dictates terms to everyone. There's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. How many people try to finagle that? You can't, it's not up to you. If all the world says, no, we want to follow Buddha, there's only one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. This is God's MO. He dictates to everyone. He dictates to Pharaoh. He dictates to King Uzziah and he dictated to Nebuchadnezzar and he dictates towards you. It is not a discussion. It's either faithfulness or unfaithfulness. In verse 26 and 27, as he's giving his interpretation, seven is a very significant number. It's a very significant number throughout the Bible. But the seven, but these seven numbers, the first seven corresponds to seven good years. And then the seven one, seven years of want. We see the interpretation of the butler and the baker, that the number corresponds to time. However, this is not a universal truth. You cannot use this then to try to interpret people's dreams. And if you see a number associate it with a date. Or, I guess you could try that when you're found out wrong, we can have a different discussion. Um, God's plans in verses 28 through 31. I always notice how God is telling Pharaoh, through Joseph's explanation, how it fits with every part of his dream. The years of plenty are swallowed up by the years of want, and everything will be destroyed unless, unless, and that's where he gets into the wisdom. In verse 32 go there myself. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. There's a lot of parallels here with the second coming of Jesus Christ. It will be soon. It will be quick. The command here is to be ready. That's what our job is as we wait for the soon return of Christ. We are to be ready to have our candles lit. And to use that time of plenty to its fullness. In other words, as Christ said himself, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And as Paul said, the night is nearly done. The day is at hand. We have our moment. It's the 11th hour. Bring in the harvest. Bring in the harvest before the days of want, before the great tribulation that will last seven years. Knowledge and wisdom, verses 36 through thirty. 33 through 36. After he's done telling, jo- telling Pharaoh what his name, what his dream means, that what God had given him, he tells him what he should do after this. Joseph is a very good preacher because not only do I tell you what God's word means, but I also need to tell you how now shall we live? So you know, seven years of good, seven years of bad. So what should Pharaoh do? well, he needs to appoint overseers and an overseer of the overseer. You cannot just hope that things will go well. After after telling Pharaoh what his dream meant, Joseph then applies wisdom to this. Knowledge is is information, while wisdom is what you should do with that information. Knowledge is knowing that that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomatoes in your fruit salad. Gross. It's really simple, right? Even though it's going to be very difficult is he needs to impose a 20% tax on all grain in his kingdom. Then not only does Pharaoh's government need to impose this tax, but they also have to save it, which is probably an impossibility for most governments. Fun political joke. I don't care if he doesn't care. Uh, The good years take care of themselves. It's the bad years that you need the grain for. While the fields are teeming with crop, harvest, Harvest that crop and save it. Do so until, until the heavens are shut and the pests are set loose. Like I said before, a lot of end times parables, a lot of end time parallels with this, and a great encouragement for us that in these times of plenty, and I don't care how bad things are getting right now, things will be so much worse during the tribulation. We won't even be here. So right now is the time to harvest. Right now is the time the harvest as much as humanly possible. Because the the time will be coming where we will not be here to harvest. We will not be here to tell the story. We will not be here to lead people to Christ. We will not be here to disciple folks. The day, the night is almost over. The day is at hand. The harvests are plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Worship team, would you come up at this time? I have on my sheet here in my notes that summarize. There's so much in here. How about this one? Wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord and do not grow weary. You will grow weary, so you have to tell yourself, I'm not growing weary. I'm not growing weary. You have to be like the psalmist who says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. Wait and be encouraged. Be encouraged that God is doing a work in you which all of the things in this life cannot diminish. That these mo- light and momentary troubles are producing for us a crown of glory which bars outweighs them all. Paul the Apostle is the guy who wrote that. He is the guy who was shipwrecked, he is the guy who was beaten to an infinite of his life several times. Historians believe he couldn't walk straight because they would have messed up his spine. He fought wild animals in a coliseum. And he says, for our light and momentary troubles. Because that's what it looks like in the view of eternity. are producing for us a crown of glory, which far as that them all. Remember this, God is in control. God is in control. You are part of a story that God is telling and he's telling your story along with it. And four, God has not forgotten you. So my message for you today, my challenge for you today is what, what Joseph told Pharaoh, save, save as much as you can, not grain, not money, but souls. Take the great commission seriously because it will not, you will not always have the opportunity. The night is almost over. The day is at hand. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song?